Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Bernadette Millard to discuss her journey of establishing an organic family farm in the desert borderlands of Oman. In previous discussions, I've repeatedly been informed of the alarming rate that intensive agriculture is depleting soils across the globe. This means that the quantity of organic carbon within the soil is being reduced year on year, which dramatically impacts the land's ability to support plant growth and retain water. It's a devastating issue that can escalate to the point that farmland becomes more like a desert. And the effect that this has on the climate is just as worrying as losing all of that productive space. So this interview is hugely inspirational. It's a case study in taking things in the other direction, from unproductive desert land to a thriving, abundant oasis. It's proof that we can turn things around. And what's even more encouraging is it's a project that was set up without prior experience. Of course, it's a journey of continued discovery, and I'm delighted that Bernadette was able to share the steps that they've been on along the way. We discuss how they made a start on this challenging location, and learn about the variety and abundance of produce that's now being grown, all organically, and in methods that are building soil and increasing production every year. We also consider the potential to scale these traditional approaches to agriculture, and the need to build better routes to market for small-scale organic farmers. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing over on the website, wearecarbon.earth, or find us on Instagram, at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Hello Bernadette, thank you so very much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have you here to talk with. And we're talking about Lisk Oasis, your organic farm in Oman. Um, and this incredible transformation, which is uh, taking it from scrubland to this beautiful and diverse ecosystem and productive farm. Um, before we get into that itself, could you maybe give a little introduction to yourself and your journey that brought you to starting the farm in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, I was born and raised in Worcestershire in the UK. Um, I studied Arabic and then I later studied law. But I've spent most of my life now primarily overseas um, in Oman, uh, where my husband is from. And I practiced law, raised a family here throughout the 90s. We traveled for my husband's job. And then about 10 years ago, we decided we would by a plot of land in quite a remote part of Oman. And the idea was just to have a, a weekend getaway from the capital. We were both still working in corporate fields at the time. And the idea was to just do some stargazing, explore the area, and maybe build a pool and a small pool house. But I could say that uh, the land had other plans for us, so a modest retreat, um, 10 years later, has turned into what you could probably describe as um, a mixed dryland plantation of tree and food crops. Okay, so quite a change of plan. <laughs> and to, to give us some context about the site itself, could you uh, offer some details about what you were starting with? 
Yes, it was almost virgin scrub. So it's a 15-acre plot on a gravel plain at the foot of Oman's eastern Hajar Mountains. And it's typical desert borderland, you can say. It's known as Piedmont in Europe or the U.S. And in Arabic, we call it Seh. Um, so it's basically the outwash fan of the mountains. And this kind of terrain continues for about 50 kilometers. And then it merges into the northern reaches of the um, Wahiba Desert. So this is very near the southeastern tip of Arabia. We were starting with, um, you know, a blank page. Uh, some transient workers had been growing annual vegetables on the plot. So they had cleared all the vegetation. Uh, this type of terrain normally is dotted with acacia bushes, um, native shrubs and variety of vegetation. But our particular plot had been completely cleared, which meant it was very much exposed to not just the sun, but also uh, the winds. Yeah, so it's quite a difficult place to, to, to actually, if you was just going to, start up grow a tree there's a complexity there because of the the brittleness of the climate absolutely so we've got a number of constraints the one as you might expect in an arid or semi-arid environment is the temperatures they can reach typically 47 48 degrees throughout the summer months then water scarcity we are located over an aquifer and we have a couple of wells but the point about the aquifer is that you have no idea the extent or scope of it, nor if you're using the water, how it's recharged. And we're very conscious of the fact also we have neighbors who had small date palm gardens. Um, so we wanted to be very careful about not um, overpumping from the aquifer. And then another constraint, which we didn't know about until we'd kind of been on the land for a while and observed it, was the Shimal winds. These are northwesterly winds, which sweep down from the desert um, in the spring and summer and literally can just uh, desiccate trees as they, as they blow through. Um, rainfall, we do have rainfall. Uh, it's very unpredictable. Um, but officially it averages uh, about 10 millimetres a year. So it's really negligible. So the use that you had for the land, you had in mind that this would be a retreat for yourself and your husband. And and now it's turned into a farm. What is the story there? What was the reason that it went from um, uh, something that is very relaxing to something that's very hard work? <laughs> Yes, very good point. Um, we soon realized that we had to do something much bigger and more fundamental to create a living habitat. It didn't take long being on the land before we realized, particularly with the, the winds as well as the high temperatures, that planting a few trees was just not going to cut it. Um, so we did a lot of research on how this is a 15-acre plot, so how could we, with limited resources, how could we shade, cool the land, deflect desert winds? And very quickly came to the conclusion that trees and using trees as 
not just for production, but as basic infrastructure for the farm, was by far and away the, the best option. But we had this tension with the issue of the water scarcity. We did a lot of research in 2012 for our kind of ecological setting. Not much had been done in terms of research, apart from Jeff Lawton, who is the permaculture guru, has a farm in Jordan. So a lot of his YouTube videos that he was uploading at the time were very helpful. And then Mark Shepherd on restoration agriculture, how you grow lots of different crops um, in lines of alley planted uh, trees. Um, and also some uh, Mediterranean gardening books or zeriscaping in Arizona and Texas and places like that is uh, also quite a useful kind of model to follow in terms of um, retain water gardens, retaining water, dry land species, um, use of gravels and mulch, etc. Okay, so the challenges of the land here actually make it difficult to grow one or two trees. And so you've embarked upon growing an entire ecosystem and forming a network of trees that are then a foundation for other plants to grow. Is that about summing it up? Absolutely. Yeah, that sums it up uh, perfectly. So what we did then, um, which many people expressed a lot of surprise about, but turned out to have been a good, a good way to go, was build a very large basin for each tree and quite deep. So it was some years before some of the saplings even poked their head up, but that gave the opportunity for the tree to establish good roots without being scorched or uprooted by these winds that I've talked about, uh, and also occasional storms. Additionally, the big uh, basin enables you to capture more water in the event that there is um, rainfall or a water event. Normally when we have rainfall, um, it's either light drizzle or it's very heavy downpour. So using that basin technique helped quite a lot. We also put uh, installed a drip system so we could water the trees in zones uh, according to their requirements for water. And a cistern, we built a cistern to collect the water from the various wells. So it's always available for um, the drip irrigation. Okay, so the the basins are there, they're capturing the water when it's coming down heavy. Yes. And helping that to stay on the site itself and nurture those trees. And um, I should just point out that our land is completely flat. So very often in that situation, you would be building earthworks and swales on contours. Um, it's very difficult to spot the contours on our land. So that is a kind of adaptation, I guess, the use of the basin. Um, we may look at doing uh, earthworks and a few patches in the, in the future. But for us, it's been um, sufficient to use the large water capture basins. So you started the development of the site with the trees themselves, and they became an aspect that 
gave a foundation for other things to follow. Um, would you say that you noticed that the trees were having an impact on the microclimate fairly quickly? I would say it was fairly quick, uh, in fact. Um, number one, we had very um, few losses of trees. We were anticipating maybe 30%, 40%. I can say over the 12 years, it's been more like 10%. Um, and very quickly, you notice um, the microclimate um, once the tree starts to develop any sort of canopy, the extent it's, it's shading, it's retaining more water in the soil. Um, it allows things to grow underneath it, but also cooling by transpiration. The tree itself is releasing water and um, that also has a, a cumulative effect. In our environment as well, you've got very big differential between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures. So we get a lot of dew. And in the morning, you can see that the ground underneath the canopy or even beyond it is, is saturated. In the beginning, we didn't realize even what that was. We thought maybe the drip was leaking or something. <laughs> um, but uh, it's amazing that you can walk along a line of trees in the morning and bury your hand almost to the wrist. And yet if you stretch your hand half a meter out into the sun beyond the canopy, it's, it's like concrete. You would need a pickaxe to break the soil. And that's something that the tree has done on its own. You plant the tree and you don't need any other intervention. That's fantastic. That's, that's very uh, interesting point. So the trees, you've had to nurture them and to pay particular attention to their watering needs at the off yeah. to, to make sure that they uh, establish. But after that, they're actually um, creating a bit of a, a system and nurturing the soil through, through their very presence and helping with the water, I suppose, in, in the overall picture of the land. This is what um, we've observed, definitely. And we always have that concern that the bigger a tree grows, the more water it's going to require. So um, we'll be extracting more from the aquifer. I would say that it's not the case. We're not using any more water for quite mature trees, um, you know, two, five, six, seven-meter trees, because they have created their own like little ecological system, I guess you'd call it. Yes, absolutely. And you find that the water in the aquifer has never um, been a, a concern in terms of the limitation of it. We had a period of drought for three years, um, and that was quite nerve-wracking because um, the water availability uh, definitely declined uh, as the level of the aquifer dropped. What we understand, though, is although we don't get a lot of rainfall, a lot of rainfall falls on the mountains to the north of us. And because we're downstream, uh, what we've observed is if it rains anywhere north of us, we don't mind because we kind of have this uh, impression that the water percolates through the limestone downstream to us one way or another. Uh, when we have a big water or rain event, there's a wadi adjacent to us, which becomes a, a massive torrent. So we actually know the track um, 
and you can see it very clearly on Google, Google Earth, the track that the water takes from the mountains to our area. Yes, very interesting. So you, you're looking at the whole uh, capturing of the, the the ground around you and how that's that's coming the whole, in. The whole catchment area. So be, we're on this fan of gravel, which is washed down from the mountains um, over many, you know, millennia. And um, you can actually see that outwash fan and then that's reinforced by water flow when it when it does rain. Yeah. So when you you're establishing the trees to assist the site um, in supporting life at all, because one or two trees um, are too vulnerable on their own. But at what point did that become a conscious decision to create produce of the land, and in particular, why organically? Um. In terms of food production, uh, we decided to farm only organically from observing the amount of pesticides that are used on neighboring farms liberally and routinely. And this produce makes its way to all the supermarkets and shops in Muscat and into the mouths of the unsuspecting consumer. So we were very interested to see how much food we could produce, uh, whether as a perennial crop, a tree crop, or annual vegetables. Once we saw how much pesticides were being used, we decided to grow annual vegetables for you know, our own health um, and for our friends and our family. And then last year, we upped our production a little bit of annual vegetables to supply the market here in, in Muscat as well. And to try and raise people's awareness. Um, the pesticides that are being used today are systemic pesticides. So it's a pesticide which is taken up often by the roots of the plant, but it's in the plant tissue. No amount of rinsing or soaking is going to remove that pesticide. And the beauty of it for the farmer is that when a bug bites a leaf, that the bug dies. Uh, we're eating it more than once, and no one today really can predict the health consequences of those pesticides accumulating in in the human body. And it's a special concern, obviously, for children whose nervous system is much more vulnerable to uh, environmental pollutants than adults. And then going beyond the organic, because... Organic food production uh, is just a standard of the product. It doesn't tell you anything about the outcome for the land. And large-scale organic food production, in fact, can be almost as detrimental to soils as conventional uh, food production when you have large-scale monocrops. So we wanted to go beyond organic and focus on tree crops and all the different benefits that the trees bring to the land, whether it's shading, cooling, deflecting uh, the wind, um, acting as basic infrastructure. And what we've noticed is that, surprisingly, the denser you plant, the better the trees are doing. 
also uh, the denser you plant, the more uh, water retention you have in the soil underneath, where things like lemongrass or aloe vera, forage grasses, um, and the annual vegetables can thrive. Yeah, that's very interesting. So it, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's almost um, from a conventional point of view, you'd think that you'd be overworking the land the more densely things are planted together. And your experience being organic and, as you say, beyond organic, this is actually the opposite. And the plants are somehow, I suppose, symbiotically supporting one another or the trees, perhaps the way the trees have established in this very harsh climate, they're, they're providing such a supportive zone for the plants that that, that dense growth is uh, integral, I suppose, to the success here. Absolutely. And um, you might describe, in today's terminology, you might describe um, our farm as a regenerative agroforestry model. In fact, what it mimics very beautifully is the traditional oasis agriculture in, that has been a feature of Oman for the last 5,000 years or more, where you're planting trees is under the, the iconic date palm is the hero tree. But underneath that, you then plant a mango, a lime, pomegranates, uh, you come down then to mulberries and other berries. Then you've got your grasses, your forage plants, annual vegetables, and finally um, herbs. And that's in a vertical kind of story system. We haven't done anything quite as in intensive as that because our land is too big for that. Um, but it's a similar similar principle. And... Traditional Omani uh, agriculture is, in fact, you know, a perfect example of permaculture, planting in guilds, companion planting, and, you know, what you may call today regenerative agroforestry. So we kind of came a bit full circle, um, and, you know, that, that is a model because it's supremely adapted to the climate the climate and all of the other constraints we're working with, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah. With the crops that you've chosen to grow, you say you're not as um, varied perhaps as the traditional model you've just described, but you have um, the different layers within your system now, do you? I would say that's that would be the ideal. Um, we, we're much more diverse, I would say, than the traditional um, Omani oasis, um, but we're not as densely planted and we don't have um, so many layers, if you like, in, in our guild. That's something we might re-engineer looking forward, um, but that, that was kind of dictated by um, constraints, potential constraints. Now we see those constraints probably are more theoretical than uh, a reality, then given the opportunity, we would go back in and do some redesigning, re-engineering, and essentially planting a lot more 
Yeah, I suppose this is all a learning curve, isn't it? When when you're developing something so um, organic as literally planting um, a farm in, in such a diverse way, it's all teaching you. And, and I imagine that if you, year to year, you're just having new ideas and you could always go back and, and reintroduce and change things about. Whenever I've come across um, something where it's a project like this, where there's a lot of biodiversity and there's an introduction of different plants and um, different layers together, there's often many unexpected outcomes with regards to the relationship that those plants have to one another. Um, accidental discoveries, if you like. Have you come across anything like that in your own experience? I would say that... The most obvious observation is that nitrogen-fixing plants or grasses, for example, under a row of trees will have a beneficial impact on those trees, which is observable to, say, another alley of trees which don't have, don't have nitrogen-fixing grasses. So it's a general principle, I think, that... Um, Things growing in the understory can benefit things growing in the overstory rather than a specific species benefiting another species. Um, what we do have are very opportunistic plantings, of spontaneous plantings of trees in ba basins of other trees where the seeds have blown some distance from where they were deposited. So we have frankincense trees, which are, uh, are growing underneath frangipani. We have a frangipani growing in, in the shade of a neem. We have papayas growing under coconuts. Um, but it all goes back to the general principle that we've created the microclimate and this um, very hospitable habitat for seeds to, to take root. Yeah. So they're taking advantage of that. And in, in regards to that, do you tend to leave them to, to flourish where they find themselves landing? We treat those areas then as like a little nursery. So we wait till, for example, the frankincense, which doesn't like to be disturbed, um, till it reaches a good size. And then we'll repot it, transport it to uh, a more suitable part of the farm. We do have, our, however, um, a neem tree growing out through a frangipani where both are quite big. To remove either would kill, kill them. And they seem to be thriving. It's something of a, a love affair going on there. So we'll probably leave those and, and see what happens. Did you find that you established um, a, a sort of condensed area of planting first and then broadened out from there? No, we didn't. Um, we may have, it, it might have been wiser to do that. Um, but because the land was so exposed, we decided to, if you like, blanket it with trees on the northern extremity, which is where the winds come from. So get as many trees as possible in that third of the, the land. So it's, they're deflecting the wind both from the house and from the trees further downstream, if you like. But now we have re-engineered some areas where it's more dense planting of date palms, um, 
and we're then going back in and trying to replicate a little bit more the traditional oasis agriculture model of vertical guilds. It seems very clear that the trees themselves, they're playing a role uh, just by being there, just by existing and growing on the land. But do you select them for specific produce as well? We've got trees which produce fruit, um, other types of food, um, forage and flowers. Then there's a kind of fifth category which are just support trees. So... We have about 1,500 trees, which includes um, about 300 date palms. Then we have fruit trees, which range from figs, papaya, mango, custard apple, um, mulberry, uh, gooseberry. Then we have forage or other food-producing trees, such as moringa, which produces leaves for human and animal consumption, and long bean pods, which again, for humans and animal consumption. Um, Then we have support trees such as manila tamarind, uh, neem, uh, trees like, um, native trees like graf, cedar, which is disciphous, and um, we use Arabian lilac, both as a flower pollinating tree and also as a tree that produces a lot of biomass. There are many flowering shrubs which play a very useful role to encourage pollinators, but they also produce so much biomass. We can use that in our compost as a mulch for green manures. Um, So we have trees which are multi-purpose in themselves but we have also trees for different purposes. Yeah, that's. I, I'm listening through all of this and I'm just imagining it must be so incredibly beautiful. I mean, that is a huge variety of produce and flowers and purposes and uses that I think we don't always associate with the trees around us as being quite so able to f- supply for our daily needs and everything that we do. Yeah, and that, that's... That's actually really one of the the most important things we wanted to demonstrate is the necessity to move to a perennial food system. The annual cycle of plowing, fertilizing, planting annual vegetables in monocrops, which then have to be sprayed with pesticides, etc., is so detrimental in every way. Whereas we have the opportunity to look around the world and see what perennial crops are available, whether it's South America, East Asia, the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent. There's such a richness and diversity of perennial foods, but they're very siloed. Um, It takes quite a lot of research to find out where these are, whether they'd be suitable how to get the um, seeds, or very often if it's something that has to be grown from a cutting. Um, But there's a wealth of perennial food crops out there. As Europe gets warmer and warmer, there's also the possibility to start growing these more tropical, subtropical food products in 
the reaches of Southern Europe, even even these days in in, in the UK. Um, and this is something I'm you know particularly interested to to promote and uh, to try and acquire different species ourselves. Yeah, this sounds like an absolute paradise in terms of when we think of farming even on a small scale it's very intensive with regards to plowing and then we've got to cultivate or I'm probably getting the order wrong because I'm not a farmer but there's so many processes to go out in the tractor and um, keep applying and processing on the fields this is kind of like a garden of Eden once it's established it feels like you you are surrounded by produce producing trees and they're actually looking after themselves quite sustainably. Would you say the site is fairly self-sufficient now? I would say it could be self-sufficient. That's not our objective. Uh, Our objective is to demonstrate how we can work towards the perennial food production and mitigate some of the harsh, harsh, harsher aspects of our climate while building a permanent landscape. So self-sufficiency in all of the foods that we eat is not, not, a, not a priority, but it's something that could be achieved with, if you look at what we've accomplished with um, no background knowledge in farming, um, limited resources, short space of time, what is designated as marginal land, desert borderlands essentially, which I think account for something like 21% of the available global land mass today are marginal lands. The potential for producing food for a system which is funded and optimized and has all the technical expertise and inputs and a lot of room for innovation in terms of water capture, um, recycling saline water, recycling of uh, grey water on site um, is, is phenomenal and I think a cause for great optimism. And I look forward to... Um, people taking taking up the gauntlet and, and moving forward with uh, some of these ideas for dry lands and uh, borderlands such as such as in Oman. Yeah. Yeah, it's very inspirational and exciting. The um, you, you mentioned that you also do some annual crops, annual vegetables that started out for yourselves and then there's sort of an excess there. With regards to the organic restrictions, um, the lack of pesticides or fertilisers that are chemically based, do you have alternatives that you use in place of that to keep this annual production um, going? Yes, our annual system, what we've done is uh, established alley planting. So we have lines of moringa trees, which we're growing for seed oil and leaf production. And in the shade of those, we have created raised beds. And we grow our vegetables under these, um, I think, 26 lines of, of raised beds on a rough kind of rotation 
basis. Uh, what we've noticed is that over time, we have had probably less pests. And I think this comes down to the fact we are using so much uh, rich and producing so much rich organic matter in the soil through composting, mulching. We leave the crop residues in the ground um, because the roots keep the soil friable and moist, and then they break down and fertilize kind of organically, naturally. Um, when we do need to apply, especially for whitefly in the season uh, right now, on tomatoes, for example, we make our own on-site uh, sprays. A base of that would be, uh, for example, neem oil. Sometimes we mix in chili powder. We use aloe vera gel, which is an antifungal um, in some of our mixes. And we find that that keeps things under control uh, with regular spraying. We do share our produce with the bugs that are and beetles that are beavering around on the soil because they're also performing you know, an important function. Um, but pretty much it keeps, keeps it under control. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. It must be quite satisfying, actually, that that loop of growing the neem and the aloe vera and that also being then put back to use on the site in certain ways. So, Absolutely. When we have a surplus of aloe vera or some of the leaves get a bit battered, we just remove them and slice them. And they also uh, can become mulch in our basins. But they also, the re remaining gel in them also has antifungal properties so it is extremely fascinating and it's very satisfying when when you're farming like this which i would say is the opposite or um the, the complete opposite to mono farming to monocrops in a field you've you've here you've got uh, all these layers and all these different varieties of crops to harvest that is difficult um from the Say, say like uh, the way that farming has developed, uh, the machines have got bigger and the fields have got bigger and it all sort of has become very simplified in terms of harvesting because it's been developed from a technology point of view. Do you think that the way that you farm here, it's possible to scale that up and, and how would that add challenges um, in the, if, if that was to become larger scale? Um, well, clearly you can't run through an orchard where you have uh, other crops growing underneath with a great big combine harvester or whatever. Um, but I think it's perfectly doable. And I think this is where Mark Shepard and people like him in restoration agriculture have, have shown um, that it's perfectly possible to, to accomplish this, albeit it's a much more labor-intensive process and it also requires a certain amount of innovation in terms of small farm equipment but this actually is is represents a, a massive opportunity um, for developing suitable machinery um, for small farms or for mixed uh, crop fields and i think this is something that's going to have to happen because um, conventional agriculture 
or even large-scale organic agriculture of monocrops is so detrimental to both the soils and has no positive impact on, on climate. So I think it can be scaled up. Yeah, I suppose it balances itself out in um, the potential that as the the farm develops and the perennial crops, there is perhaps less manual labour there that needs to occur. It's a very important question of, of balance. And I think if you're going to adopt uh, this mixed regenerative kind of agroforestry approach to food production, you're going to reduce your inputs in terms of chemicals. You're going to reduce your requirement for large equipment and also the high energy costs of running that Um, and you're going to have many other positive impacts so you'll probably have less weeds to deal with because if you're growing the right type of grasses and forages and cover crops and ground cover you're actually crowding out uh, the weeds and I think a lot of people have been experimenting now with those techniques, even on a large scale, like Gabe Brown in, in the US is uh, one of the leaders in those you know, huge flat fields of uh, experimenting with that kind of ground cover, cover crops, and its impact on weed reduction and soil fertility. There are enough um, models now to, to follow. Uh, and then, like I say, the... The scope is then for innovation in small farm equipment in order to negotiate um, those different levels of of crops you've got growing and different harvest times as well. So I think very often it it, it won't be such such an obstacle because everything is growing and requiring harvesting at, at different times. Yeah, so it's a continued learning curve, but certainly offers so much potential. And it really is the way forward in in so many ways to to move away from the conventional approaches. Um, Anything that we do that is moving in this regenerative setup, it seems to take a little bit more time regarding the productivity, perhaps in the first couple of years, um, compared to having a more aggressive chemical input into the soil. But have you found in your experience over the years now that there is a greater productivity and resilience year on year? Yeah, productivity and resilience build year on year. And that's something that we can see very clearly. Uh, In fact, uh, challenge is not the growing or maintaining the crops and the trees. But our main challenge is channeling that extra productivity, the abundance, if you like, and finding suitable pathways to market. Yeah, I think that this is when, I mean, particularly for yourselves, you've gone into this not necessarily expecting to set up a farm. You, you've purchased the place to relax. And, and now as small scale farmers, you, you have to wear many hats, I imagine, and do the whole scope of roles and getting that to market, like you say, that must be one of the most challenging aspects if the, the route there has not been already formed. Have you got any ex- sort of, I suppose, words of encouragement or particular challenges regarding that that you've stumbled upon? 
the particular challenges are that the there is no um, pathway to market for even for organic produce. So there's limited demand, although that is growing. There are no the supermarkets or retail outlets are not particularly interested to promote organic produce. It's seen as something which is more expensive and you can't achieve the volumes or the predictability of delivery that a retail outlet or a supermarket wants in order to maintain consistency for their customer. It's much easier for them to import from Holland um, some mass-produced uh, tomato from a greenhouse than to deal with a, a small farm in, in Oman where the amount, the quantity, the supply, the consistency um, of production over four or five months um, may not suit the retail outlet. And then there's no, um, there's no infrastructure in the market, whether private sector or government, where there are any collection or processing facilities um, there's no farmers market in the sense of you know, this becoming pre you know prevalent in in Europe, for example. Um, we have uh, traditional regional markets which are very kind of ad hoc uh, affairs, animal livestock, and some vegetables sort of scattered on the ground. Um, but those really don't serve the purpose of a, a farmers a farmers market. So we're lacking the infrastructure, lacking the pathway into the retail market. So we've experimented with online platforms. At the moment, we're marketing ourselves exclusively direct to consumer. And we're working with various food delivery apps in Muscat in order to deliver um, our produce. So... Uh, it's gaining profile, it's gaining some traction, um, but it's a very another very labour-intensive uh, affair is the actual distribution and marketing. One of our main products, obviously, is dates. We produce and we package five different varieties of dates, which we've brought to market in the last couple of years. If you go into a supermarket here, however, you'll find mainly Saudi Arabian dates, there are very few Omani dates. And this is because the low value is ascribed to a crop, which is the main crop and the staple crop, which is grown throughout the country. So because of it, it is very ubiquitous, it has a low value within the country. Um, the Omani farmer not only doesn't have a pathway to market locally, but he has no means of exporting the dates uh, to external markets, overseas markets, where it has a much higher value due to its unique nature and scarcity. Um, so also, if you were to sell Moringa leaves in the market, they would only last 24 hours and um, they'd be considered low value. Uh, but the minute you start to process and this is, I think, is the age-old um, problem of farming all over the world. But it's the farmer who gets the least return for his produce. 
it is the middleman who's able to take it away, has the capital and the infrastructure to transfer it in the market and each person who handles it adds value and gets a proportionately higher return. So what we've produced on from our um, crops is, again, another little experiment in uh, how you can add value by processing. We produce and package uh, lemongrass herbal tea from dried lemongrass on farm. We produce a moringa leaf powder, which is a protein powder. Um, we're now producing cosmetic oils from moringa seeds. It's very much tabletop, kitchen tabletop, um, but using the minimal amount of um, processing and packaging, um, how you can add value. I think it's important um, to demonstrate that. And, and some Omanis are actually trying their trying to do something similar with salt and things like brown sugar, which are very unique products. Um, but if given to a middleman, will just get sold into a mass market and subsumed, lose all their unique attributes. Yeah, so this is, I suppose it's just about evolving something new, a new relationship with the consumer, because uh, the... The desire for organic food, as you say, it is growing. And I think also it's not just that organic aspect, it's the local and um, seasonal aspect where you feel that there is less of a, a sort of time frame between the produce being picked off the plant and it being on your table. There's There's going to be more nutrition in that. It's going to taste better and be fresher. So I suppose it's it's about continuing the innovation and establishing new new ways that the the small farmer as yourself can interact and I think that's very interesting that you found that technology and apps is a direct uh, beneficial way to to start that that process because we it doesn't really seem to matter where we are in the world we do have technology that that seems to connect consistently and um that that yeah that that's very i think that that's going to be the way forward is is more direct to consumer relationship between the farmer yes i think uh if we had um infrastructure perhaps promoted by government or private sector um there's some very good models in in the uae already where there's an online platform where they take a very proactive approach to gathering produce from farmers and centrally packaging it and also lab testing it for pesticides before offering it online to the consumer. Um, so that's a very new platform. I think there's plenty of scope for us to do something similar here in Oman. There are many farmers who are farming organically but have in, in, in traditional oasis gardens but they have no way to get their produce to the consumer who would be interested in it. Whether it's uh, you know um, a higher income individual in the capital or a tourist or an expatriate, where the demand is, there's no connection between the farmer in the interior of Oman and the potential consumer in the capital. And again, that's a 
considerable business opportunity for some young Almani entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. There's a gap there that's waiting to be taken up. And uh, yeah, sounds like there's a lot of good ideas being experimented with. So hopefully we'll see something uh, more concrete that establishes out of that in the years to come. I'm just going to backtrack. Um, I I meant to ask you this earlier. So um, do you have any livestock on the farm? Yes, um, we held off a little on having introducing animals because whereas you might plant a tree and, and be fairly sanguine about whether it lives or dies, we have no experience with animals or livestock. Um, so we didn't want to take the responsibility of, of raising animals and having baby babies to be taken care of. Until about a year ago, we decided that our requirement for manure and the benefits that animals could just bring generally um, kind of outweighed our objections. So we started with chickens and um, they are thriving. They free range through, through the property and they they bring some services in terms of pest control and um, manure, obviously, and uh, pecking at the soil, turning it over, kind of a natural rotivator. And then um, a few months later, we added uh, uh, kind of half a dozen goats. And now our herd has expanded to 19. So we've kind of got uh, a system going where we're having babies being born fairly regularly and um, they also have their you know uses to the farm in terms of you know browsing areas where you know brambles and where it's hard to keep weeds down etc and then manure obviously but mainly they're just uh you know something we very much enjoy and spend far too much time sitting in the goat pen with them. Yes, no, it sounds like they add a lot of life to the to the site. I can imagine it's a wonderful, in fact, a very beautiful place to spend some time. And I, I think perhaps you've, you've come full circle because you set out to create a relaxing place for yourself and your husband and you've embarked upon this project, which is, in fact, enormously hard work compared to that. But I'm imagining what you've established now is hugely rewarding. And in fact, you have created a, a relaxing haven um, where you can both just enjoy the goats and the produce and, and um, no doubt spend an awful lot of hard work um, on, on that land, but gain that, that back as well in, in rewards for yourselves. Yes, it's a very good point. We have, in fact, achieved um, what we set out to, um, albeit uh, after a very long journey and a lot of much harder work than we were anticipating. And I think the reaction of people when they come is uh, kind of reinforces that. People feel very um, in touch with nature and filled with, you know, amazement whether it's this tree or that tree or these flowers or all or, or the animals. So 
Yes, mission accomplished. <laughs> well, congratulations. And I, it's enormously inspiring because you've you've set this up in a climate that is incredibly challenging. Um, I think that you're demonstrating that perhaps this could be achieved anywhere on the globe um, or nigh on anywhere on the globe um, if, if somebody puts their mind to it. Are there any words of advice um, or particular references perhaps that you would recommend to people if they were starting out on a completely new project? Yes, on a completely new project. So much has uh, research has been done in even since 2016, 2017 on dryland farming and the establishment of uh, regenerative forests, food forests, and I would encourage people just to do a search for the latest um, academic papers. And then also, I would also uh, point people in the direction always of uh, Jeff Lawton and uh, Mark Shepard. Um, there's a, a gentleman running a podcast called Abundant Edge, who is an amazing source of uh, information. Um, and I would just say, in general, people should not hold back from from trying. They shouldn't be deterred. You shouldn't actually go down rabbit holes and do too much research. You should kind of just just get out there and do it. Yes. Trees, trees, trees take, you know, five years to, to do anything very interesting. So, you know, you have that saying, the best time to have planted a tree was 25 years ago. The next best thing is today. That's kind of a very um, pessimistic um, kind of quote, I would say. But if you say it might have been five years ago, but the next best time is, is now. Just get out there and start planting and experimenting and you know, plant densely in this environment, follow the kind of permaculture principles uh, of Omani Oasis agriculture, and which you can find many examples of worldwide. Wonderful. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, a really beautiful story, I think, and wishing you the very, very best of luck as things continue and no doubt to keep on flourishing and you achieving all of this abundance in your beautiful farm. Thank you very much, Helen. It's been a pleasure and a privilege and I wish you all the best with this great initiative of yours. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time we'll be joined by Michelle Gilman and her startup, Food Fluency. We've heard a lot about the huge significance that regenerative farming can have on improving the health of the planet. And so we're tipping the focus in this discussion to explore the role of farming and our food systems upon our own personal health. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>